0: Hello and welcome to Get Your Play On,
1: the industry podcast for playwrights and theatre makers.
0: I'm Sam Brady.
1: And I'm Ginny Manning. For this episode, Sam and I spoke to playwright and all around amazing human being, Simon Vinnicum.
0: So we've both known Simon for a couple of years now. He's a brilliant mentor and friend, Simon talked to us about his experiences of getting work on from his early ventures, self-producing using money borrowed from his mum, through to being commissioned by major venues like Hampstead Theatre and The National.
1: So here's Sam and I talking to Simon Binnicum.
2: I wrote a play, I don't really know why, I went to drama school when I was 24 for a year at Drama Studio London. And uh, did my year there, which I really enjoyed actually. It did me a lot of good, mostly as a human being. <laughs> it uh, it was definitely character building. And I know I kind of needed to shed a lot of what had happened to me as a teenager, uh, which was kind of brutal. And then I yeah, I, I sort of went the other way after having such a hard time there, tried to recover that, became quite a sort of vain. I think a lot of people are in their early twenties, desperately tried to forget what had happened. And then to go to drama school, I had to sort of confront a lot of that stuff because you can't be vain. You can't cling on to your dignity when you're, you've got to make a dick of yourself and be relaxed about it. So while I was earning money to go to drama school, I had a brilliant uh, building boss. I worked as a labourer and he was fantastic with me. He sort of cultured me for want of a better word. No, that's totally what he did do. So he would, and when he heard that I was interested in doing acting, he said, you need to start watching proper films and not that nonsense that you're watching. So he gave me this list, and it was stuff like the Three Colours trilogy and Serrano de Bergerac, and it was wonderful because it really it totally opened my mind. I'd been a bit of a football moron to that point. All I'd done was football. I'd sort of played and got quite good um, and was obsessed with it. And then I think I probably... Realised maybe about the time when I wasn't going to do an apprenticeship, I was still playing at a sort of semi-professional level. But then when I went to university, I just thought I got completely distracted and realised actually there's a lot more fun to be had. And finally, my mind started to get a bit hungry um, and want something beyond football. And so that was brilliant. And he was the first person to me, I think, just through talking about the films, and he said you should write a play. So I think that that's the first. The notion of that would never have occurred to me before. And then after I left drama school, I just wrote a play and it was incomplete. It was about my mate, um, desperately shy boy, Dan. Um, And I just sort of, I don't know what it was. I have no idea why I did it. I kind of, I was always going to show it to him. And I wanted him to be a bit less frightened about the world and a bit more confident. Um,
1: So it sounds like you had, you had reasons he did have definite reasons for doing it in that
2: yes I, mean, I, I, I didn't communicate well yeah and, I didn't sort of sit down perhaps a bit of a love letter to him in a way um just sort of you know
1: yeah how lovely
2: it's all right and and I sort of Im- imagine that his brother who was rather with similar situation with our brother so my next eldest was hugely charismatic sort of surfed his way through at being a teenager and I watched that in awe oh, I just thought my god you know he's Girls adored him, and he just was fearless. And I thought, God, I don't want to be like that. Yeah. Um, and his brother was the same. So I wrote a play in which his brother had died, and it forced him to come out of himself a little bit. Um, he was all right. <laughs> and his father worked at Lambda as a director. His thing was only twenty-five pages long or something, and he found it on on his desk. So my mates left it on the table. I don't know he didn't ask him to read. He read it. Uh, and he rang me up and he said, you need to do something about this. It's really good. That's and the,
1: great. Wow.
2: Yeah. So he sent it to the Royal Court. I didn't know what the Royal Court was. And then I got a phone call quite quickly after that. And she said, it was Nina Linden at the Royal Court. And she said, oh, Simon, I'm Nina at the Royal Court. And uh, it sounds like a really bad joke, but I honestly thought, "Oh, that's not good. And I started to worry about my overdraft or something, because I was young enough to be worried about that sort of. Um, and I, I thought, oh God. And she said, We've read your play. It just took a while for the penny to drop. It was a lovely feeling. I thought, oh, just that little validation. I'm sure we'll talk more about validation and what that means. And she said, You, you, would you like to come in and do this course? It's every Tuesday, 10 weeks, uh, with this bloke called Simon Stevens, playwright. She didn't say bloke. Um, and I said, Yeah, yeah, great. So I did 10 weeks with Simon Stevens. and wow. then I wrote my first play as a result after that after having a brilliant time I loved it uh, I didn't love it at first but I certainly loved it by the end loved him um, and he's continued to this day to mean a lot to me as he's been I definitely wouldn't have carried on writing even after the course without him I wouldn't have carried on after a year without him and I wouldn't still be doing it today without him him mm. and Sam Adams have been kind of really crucial it's really helpful to have somebody who's older than you and has seen it all so mentoring is important absolutely yeah absolutely because it's just weird right okay. so you had to write a play at the end of the 10-week course and i remember laughing a mate of mine went oh i said i've got a play on it was a good, good mate it was a footballer 15 years younger than me because you've got a play blood and i said yeah, yeah yeah he goes how's that like like musical and i said it's not a musical and he goes Well, like actors, though, like real (laughs) live. And I was laughing at him and I was a little bit dismissive. But then I thought, no, I wasn't aware that there were plays about now. So even at drama school, we did Closer with Patrick Marber. But that was the extent. And I didn't put two and two together and think there were other plays like this. And actually, the 90s was when new writing really exploded. Of course, there was new writing before. Harold Pinter's new writing, you know. Noel Coward's new writing. But there was an explosion of it in the 90s.
1: Were you... Seeing plays at all? Were you no. seeing any of this new writing in action? No, no. so
2: what happened then was um the director who had read the play said, You need to read a couple of other I think you'll really like this guy, and it was Joe Pennell. Okay. And I did, I adored his um Some Voices Still is it a wonderful play. And that again was a bit like my building boss giving me something going, Okay, here's a new portal in my pretty dull, lifeless head. I just felt all of these little doors being open and that was definitely true. I thought it was incredible. So then when I went to drama school, I had read, they gave a long list of plays to read, but not much modern stuff, but it still meant I read everything on that list. There was 150 plays on it. But I thought, if I'm doing this and it's bloody expensive, I'm going hard. And then with Simon's course, you would get a play every week. Um, I can still remember. So the first week was Sarah Kane Blasted second week was <laughs> what
1: are we to start <laughs> <laughs> what introduction to yeah. playwriting
2: i think he did a good job of course it was all royal court so you but he did a good job of giving you a nice um nice mix yeah so carol churchill far away which he used as a teaching tool yeah I've i think that with you me. did it with him yeah i think it's a stephen jeffrey's where paps did it first and then simon stephen jeffrey's book Incidentally, is incredible on playwriting just while we're there yeah. um, and I think he taught Simon a lot of what Simon taught me and and and, and Leo taught and probably I teach um, what else was on there blasted uh, the weir which had not long been on I suppose wow. um, yeah I mean those those kind of plays and then he also said you should check out um, Peter Gill and a few other writers and I anything that somebody recommended I'm having some of that and I didn't oh uh, uh, yeah any recommendation but then there were just a load i hadn't heard of how accorded the lights i remember buying that and really enjoying it just something that was so loose with form and because you know what it's like when you start writing you just go well, well how do i start what should it look like my well, i remember my first thought with simon i just was so sort of fucking waffling and tell me how to do it <laughs> Uh, and I don't mean that everything that he said I really took like gold dust. But underneath that, I was really like, "Can just tell me how to do it? How many scenes is it supposed to have? Like, you know, uh, what happens in a scene transition? Stop asking about. Let's get to the truth of the matter." And I just thought he's saving that to the end. At the end, <laughs> he's going to tell us how long you should spend doing it a day, where you should start, should you know your ending, and all those sort of yeah. things that are quite laughable to me now, but back then. I just thought there must be a process by which you sort of take yourself through, and then you you're there. Play, end, bosh. And he didn't. <laughs> um, it took me a long time to start getting it with form and all of that. That's something that you just you get it from seeing more stuff. And that was a lovely part of the course. You go and see a few things, and then of course people much cleverer than me. You get back in the room, and they would discuss the piece. And that I just never said a word because everybody was so much better educated, more articulate, better read. Uh, So I just sat there. Simon was brilliant because I left after the first session and wasn't going to come back. So I left at the end. And I don't know, perhaps he just saw in my body language and the fact that I hadn't said a word in the first (laughs) session. And he just sort of tapped me and he went, everything all right? And um, I said, yeah, 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 yeah. And he was lovely. He said, I read your play really good. I said, oh, thanks. And that sort of maybe i'll take one foot back in and he said don't don't be worried he said the power of argument is not the same thing he says they are amazing at it and have been taught it and have been taught to believe their views are right you know and back it up they they have the power of the argument but that's not what play is and i thought that that was If he didn't say that, I would have been gone because we did this whole thing, which I'm sure I've discussed with you guys before, where he starts with, if you're talking about writing, what's the difference between human beings and animals? And I think it comes from David Land. And David Land said, we're aware of our mortality. We know that we will one day die. So we want things before that day happens, right? So I think he did a thing. Something you want by the end of your life, something you want in five years, something Mm. you want in years, now. And so I was split up in a group with a couple of other guys and a girl who had been to I think two of them have been to Cambridge and one of them have been to Oxford. And I, I can't remember what I I think I said feeling or something really quietly and meekly. And they just launched into all of these different and they talking about Socrates. And, uh, you know, they had a wonderful understanding and they were trying to put it all back to the, the birth of story structure about which I knew nothing. All this synthesis, antithesis, uh, thesis, it all just flew over my head. And, you know, I had a slight inkling of what, who Socrates was, but I was a lot more familiar with the Brazilian footballer, uh, <laughs> as you know, as a bad a gag as that is. And I felt really ashamed by it. And it was my own fault. I was given, you know, I certainly wasn't privileged, went to a normal state school, but I was a dick within that, you know, although I was struggling as a teen, I was a real idiot and lazy. And, you know, I was, I was lucky enough to have parents who really loved me and, 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 and uh, so I think I wasted a lot of that. It was my own fault. School—it wasn't a good school. It wasn't at all. But I still didn't take the chances given to me to to step forward and you know yeah. read some fucking books. <laughs>
1: but it takes—it like it takes commitment. It takes perseverance, and and like quite a lot of basically exploration and confidence in yourself to get to the point of writing and getting something put on. And do you think that you? could only have done that with other people's help like very early on in your career how soon did you you get to the point where you're like i know this is a good play and i'm going to get it put on a stage
2: yeah i didn't i didn't know that um so i did that course and i wrote year 10 which was my first play that went on
1: great yeah
2: and uh, yeah yeah so they said somebody will be rung at the end of this course uh and have a meeting with simon and it might be one it might be two of you um and we'll think about doing a reading of that play. Just one, just one or two. One or two. sort of. How, and they said, we might. And they didn't. They never did a tennis reading. But he did ring me up. And that was the first moment I can remember ringing my friend who was on the course. And she went, he's rung you, hasn't he? <laughs> and I said, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and she was lovely about it. Katie Morgan. I'm going to get her married. A she's now married. name, And she was wonderfully supportive. And it was thrilling. You know, she was buzzing. But I still didn't take that as a, it's good. And I remember going in, he said, you've got a problem here because he's too passive. And it was a brilliant note, but that's all I thought about. Well, I have not got it right. Oh. <laughs> uh, so I didn't leave it sort of buzzing that he liked it. And and the idea of it going on was completely alien because I didn't know anyone who'd had a play on. Um, so then the next step was Simon rung me up again and said, We've got this invited group whereby people, there's been lots of these 10 week things and we are inviting back. There was no one else from my one, but there were, I think, 10 or eight. Maybe it was only eight. I should be able to remember them. But Mike Bartlett was in it. Duncan McMillan was in it. uh, Jason Hall was in it. Nick Gill. Incredible. And they're all brilliant. They were great. Uh, So then... They were a bit more, Duncan had had a reading at the Royal Court and we all looked at Duncan thinking, yeah, he switched on and he understands about theatre. He had done a degree in it, I think at Birmingham. I thought, oh, this guy knows what he's doing. This guy's talking about it like a career, which I definitely didn't have thoughts of then. Um, And he, I remember him reading Year 10 and now it started to, I started to have a few meetings about Year 10. So I'd sent it out on the advice of Simon. So the next step for that is I had a meeting, a really awful meeting. In what way? Uh, well, I arrived at the meeting and it was with a lady and she looked at me and she went, wow, wasn't what I was expecting. And Did I was, she actually
1: say that? Yeah.
2: And I felt slightly upset right in a way. I have a look or I had a look, which was much more prominent then of looking a bit like a Sloaney, slightly camp geography teacher. <laughs> and I think the perception of me having read year 10 was this right, white geezer would come in and go all right mate and uh, no one had ever had a conversation with me about class before mm-hmm. but when I got to the royal court it's like people can shut up about it and I had no I'm like what are you on about so I remember getting so confused about what middle class was because I suppose if I before no one had ever discussed it and I understood that if you were working class it meant that you did sort of a manual labor your family or your Parents did manual labour. Money was bloody hard, right? You had to work really hard and you didn't have much money. Middle, I thought, was for everybody like people, well, like me, and uh, who were sort of. My parents didn't have much money because we had four kids. But he didn't do a manual labour job. He did some computer programming thing. And my mum didn't work, and we didn't have a lot of money. But we, you know, you were not wanting for things. All the and upper, I thought, like sloan's people who are walking around Putney are upper class. They are minted. And then I just got this, the Royal Court were talking about people in Putney, like Prince Harry's mates, as middle class. And that completely blew my mind. (laughs) If they're middle, I'm fucked. I am, you know, I'm at the the poor house sort of thing. I found the whole conversation unhelpful, really confusing, but the Royal Court were obsessed with it. And so was theatre. And I I found it really troubling at the beginning.
1: So when was this? How long ago was this? Because I think...
2: 15 14 years ago
1: okay so maybe class is an issue that doesn't
2: doesn't Uh, (laughs) so they seem to everybody seemed to be a bit more interested in me uh, as soon as they thought I was a bit of a geezer who played football Uh, which is true but so is the thing that I'm probably a bit I mean who gives a shit Uh, but it there was weird to feel that fascination and they went oh you went to a comprehensive and I could feel that people loved that and I a bit invaded by that theatre. There's a lot of nonsense about around it, and you must try and cut through it. If I was to go back, if I could, I think if I went back to myself, just I would have a really long chat about just do what you want to do. Focus entirely on what you want to write. Do not listen to any of that noise. Certainly don't listen to what pe- other people are telling you to write about, mm. because there's this weird romanticism about the past, and perhaps with the royal court, it goes all the way back to look back in anger. You know, the angry, but fucking hell, you couldn't write a play like that now. It just, you know, it would completely die on its ass. It was as good as it was, of course. And because you get all of this noise around, I thought, oh, maybe I should be writing all about that. I should be doing all the stuff about kids at school and, you know, the, or the football guys or the guys on the building site. Because, of course, when you'd start talking about that stuff, they'd be like, oh, yeah, you should. And then I just felt really unnerved by it because it wasn't what I wanted to write about either. Um, and then that evolved, okay? So you just felt that that real... Uh, after Year 10, I wrote this play. I'm jumping about, and we will go back to Year 10 and the process of getting that on. After that, there was a big fuss because Year 10 was really... It did incredibly well for a play that ended up going on at the Fringe. It went on to the BAC. It's gone around the world. Um and then everyone was, oh. And then there were lots of meetings and it felt like everything was um, very accessible. But I really sensed the disappointment when I wrote Wisdom. Oh, well, called Wisdom and Tears back then, which is about this middle-aged man who finds out that his wife's been cheating on him for some time and she's leaving him. So he almost goes on this journey where he tries to do everything that he never did. Oh. Um, and... Uh, it was this weird process where it was clearly respected. I had this odd process where everyone at the Royal Court was telling me, this is really
1: good. Was it at the Royal Court?
2: No. It oh. never happened. The literary manager wouldn't read it. So you it was awful. I was getting all this stuff coming back to me, saying, this play's brilliant. Simon said it's wonderful. He was brilliant with it. Simon was really encouraging. This is really good. And he said it so much. I mean, in a way, he wanted to say, this is so much better than year 10, and he's right. Basically the long and short of it is the literary manager had a thing where he wanted to discover the writers. And 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 you know, just wasn't interested. And he probably got a load of plays on his plate. So with year year ten was different, because the play was written at the Royal Court. It was a case of sending it out. By the time I send it out, all of the responses I got were too late. I couldn't wait. I just wanted I thought, oh fuck this, I'm gonna get it on. I didn't understand the process of how long things take in theatre. And it's still too long now.
1: How long do you think it takes usually? Is there a usually from no, when you
2: no. Most of the times I've sent a play out, which is I haven't done it that many times uh, to, to run, you know, yeah, unsolicited, you, as it were. Yeah, unsolicited. Um, they always said it took three months. I think I received two no letters in my life. What usually happens is you just don't get back. Yeah. Which is a killer. I hope that's changed because I haven't sent an unsolicited script for a while. I really hope that's changed. There's some reasons behind this. So talking to people, if you've got a play now. Thinking, what should i do with it i think you should send it out to anyone and everyone if you're absolutely sure and you must be absolutely sure that you are this play is your play and when i say that i mean that you feel it with everything mm. and this is the play you have to write right now this must be read that's quite a difficult thing it? it takes a little bit of confidence yeah, but does. just keep looking at it and going to do yeah it does it, <laughs> it does you're right jimmy um being absolutely sure that you've done all you can this is the, your best work and i want this to be read perhaps that's a better way of looking at it this is my best work and i want how it to be do
1: you read. know what's that this is what i was told to sam about yesterday how mm. do you know when that it's the best that you you know that it's it's ready what's because <laughs> i was like trying to explain the feeling when you're like right that's great and then you, but you come back maybe a bit later and start to doubt it and you're like oh well,
2: right how do so, you know really good <laughs> that's a good thing to do Simon, brilliant advice. Sam always said always said the same. Sam Adamson, write it, leave it alone. Three or four weeks, leave it alone. Um, so you leave it alone for three weeks, then you come back to it and you read it again. And I've got this real habit. And that my first four pages are going to be fucking good. <laughs> and I'll read it, go, yeah, yeah, brilliant. Genius, genius. And then there'll be a point where I just start to skip through the pages a little bit too quickly. I'm starting to, yeah. it's good, but it ain't great. And that's the point. And then it'll come back to the end. Brilliant. <laughs> I'm really, this is great I know this is great because I've sent it to a couple of people I respect and they've told me it's really good but it's got to be better than that so that little bit where I was not quite reading it and not quite owning that middle 15 pages I haven't done I've got to keep working
0: mm-hmm.
2: until the point where I go okay this fucker is unignorable very difficult particularly at the beginning like year 10 I didn't have any of those feelings I just had enough people who had read it I had a mate who was a director who ended up directing it he was at drama school with me. And I had Simon's say. And then people like Duncan, I remember. So in the process of sending it out in that group, Duncan was wonderful. He read it because we had to swap plays during that group, which is a really healthy thing. I always say to you guys, don't I, find your tribe, swap your work. Yeah. Come on, let's do. So was
1: he writing lung? Look, what period of that? Was he writing he, lungs at the
2: time? He was just about to have his first play on, which was called uh, The Most Humane Way to Kill a Lobster. I hope I'm getting the title right. It was on at Theatre 503 because okay. there's another documentary that I love, I think, which is called How to Kill a Lobster. I think it's called The Most Humane Way to Kill a Lobster. We all went to see that during the course, so Duncan was even more impressive to us. <laughs> uh, um, you know, odd because you had Mike in that group as well, who was very shy, actually, uh, who I probably befriended more than the others. We stuck together quite a bit. Um, fiercely intelligent but I was so modest with it. And so you didn't really suspect it. And he only really showed you little bits at a time. I, I guess he hadn't found his stride just quite yet. Um, whereas Duncan spoke so confidently and just seemed to know what he was doing. He said to me, this is fucking brilliant. He just said, "This it's just like three things happen on every page. And, oh, is that good? <laughs> um he it says just, just, it feels like they're going to come off the page and punch you at any moment. And I thought, oh, that's, see, he's just so—he's always been like that. He's so generous about other people's that's work. Great. So that gave me a bit of belief. I thought, well, if the clever guy thinks it's good, <laughs> Simon thinks it's good, etc. cetera. I, and then Max, the, the guy who I'd gone to drama school, was like, well, let's just get it on. Fuck those people. So we did do it. And the, obviously the actors did it unpaid. I wouldn't do a gig these days with anyone not getting paid. But sort of if you're of a similar mindset, they all wanted to get a scene. Uh, we did do it and we had one amazing Peter Pacey was the teacher in it and he was just and I thought for him to do it for nothing was amazing and he did I remember he was brilliant it's
1: a big decision isn't it to self-produce yeah
2: I was really struggling mentally I was falling apart a bit because that whole thing of like I've actually borrowed a few hundred quid for my mum
1: it's a stress isn't it of course it killed me it just made
2: me think I've made no progress you know I want to be at this point in my life and I'm still a fucking baby you know uh and what am I doing What am I doing? This isn't, you know, it was awful. And then just this series of things happened. Peter Pacey, I really remember, just before the dress rehearsal, first run through, and he went, this is a hit, (laughs) at the top of his voice. (laughs) And it was really emotional for me because I really respected him and I dismissed it. I went, no, it's a play about teenagers. It's not about anything like big or bold. All the things they'd said at the Royal Court must be thematically large. You must be saying something about the world. It does say stuff about the world, but you do that just through your passion and your, yeah, your passion. That's, you will do it if you don't have to, it doesn't have to be a dissection of a particular mm. subject matter at all. This it says so much that play about the school system and what well, it is to be a teenager. What happens to the teenage brain? I could go on, but it just doesn't name them. It, there's no act for monologue telling you what it's about. <laughs> um don't get me wrong, there's plenty of things wrong with year 10. It's a very raw piece of work. But him saying that was just like, oh okay. And then um oh fucking how did Meth- someone said send it to methuen because they might do it. Oh no yeah, Fimbra. They said because what's going on here, you might get it published. So you they got did-
1: it on at the Fimbra. Yes. Did you so what route did you get on at the Fimbra?
2: Sent it to me, said we want to do it, but you you'd have to contribute to the, Uh, And this, Neil McPherson, brilliant. Uh, And I loved him. Love him because he was one of the few people who never fucked about. He always went, yep. And he always had real courage of his convictions. He was everything I wanted everyone to be. Mm -hmm. Just say yes. And the other thing I'll say quickly before I continue on this, the second best answer anyone can get is no from a theatre. Don't kid yourself that it's anything else. It's yes or it's no. Anything else is a campaign in the arts. And I'll get to that in a minute. So, uh, yes, Neil McPherson said, well, I really want this. And he was pretty uh, ferocious in getting in contact, saying, come on, because I was hanging on for 5v3. And Neil, and I, I was so pleased with the success for him. It was back in the day when timeout was a big deal. And now timeout, it sort of breaks my heart that it's oh, not. Yeah. And he says, not- if, if it gets four or five stars in timeout, it will sell out straight away. And I was thinking, mm. and sure enough, it got. Uh, I still remember picking up time out, flicking through it. And I just read the first line. I did, didn't see the box that said it's Critics' Choice because I still didn't quite understand what that meant. But it said, oh, something like acne, razor blades. Uh, it doesn't sound like very much. And I just read those first lines and I went, oh. It confirmed everything I thought people would say about the play. (laughs) And then under it, it wrote, but this is a hit, exclamation mark. And then I was with my girlfriend now, my wife, and she went, look, (laughs) it's in the, that's a big deal. And I just remember being completely breathless going down the escalator thinking, oh, because it might change things. And it means I'm not a fraud. And it means borrowing that money was, you know, the first thing I did, it did make just enough money. I gave it all to my mum. and." uh we split the rest of the profit between the actors I should say that but my share went to the to my mum and uh and that felt great and I thought ah validation you know so he was right and that you know that subsequently got transferred and then that sort of then I got all of the letters then from the theatres that I'd sent it to the bush god there were a couple of other theatres who are a hampshire pats Within 24 hours, BBC had got in touch, TV and the radio, so two different people from that. Uh, the lovely guy, Mark Dudgeon, who was working at Matthew, and said, there's someone from a film company, first film company, wants to talk to you about making a movie of this. And I don't know if it'll ever happen like that again, perhaps if you have play on downstairs at the Royal Court, and perhaps it does. Uh, but because of that, back when reviews seem to also have a lot more weight, I don't think they do. It's really interesting seeing Michael Billington go. Um, so it just sort of exploded. But then I thinking I'd sort of arrived and now I've got, I think I had two features on the go, I've, I've made it. But actually, it's still very difficult to get your work on. Um, and you can get really hung up going, well, maybe they just don't want me because I've had a couple of plays on the fringe now. I'm not young enough. But they're all distracting thoughts. And again, if I could go back to myself, it probably don't worry about it too much. It's a lot of it's about who have we got now? You know, the artistic directors and consider them and think, am I to their taste? Should you bend to theirs? No, I don't think you should. But you do have to accept the fact that people have got taste and you, you might not be it. I think going back to the whole thing of putting your work on, which I really wanted to come back to. is that I have absolutely no regrets and I kind of wish I'd almost done it sooner with year 10.
1: So you were sending it out to theatres yeah. and nobody
0: took it up.
2: Yeah, because you just it was, hadn't heard. Yeah. So it took me years to get any good in those meetings because you're so low status. And you're just like,
0: oh, I hope they put my play on. And
2: yeah. you don't speak, you don't articulate yourself. You actually it shouldn't be like, I hope they put my play on. You better be good enough to put my play on as well. But like, you better put me with the right director. This is my work. This took ages. This took two and a half, three years. That's not an arrogant statement. Or yeah. you better be good enough. But you better believe in it enough for it to be really great. And it must be like that with directors as well.
1: That's one of the things we're talking about as well yesterday mm. was how do, you, how do you gain, once you've gained your place in the room, how do you maintain the, the, um, the confidence and the, the kind of the, the right power you should have in that room to be able to speak up like you've just said?
2: So hard. And I didn't do it for, I don't know, 10 years. The first one of those, so after year 10, I wrote, uh, with some tears, Ben Yankovic at the National rang me up and I remember I was on holiday year 10 had just gone on and he said I work at a national and I'd sent it to them I must stop and he got back to me within the three months he would have been one of the two who got back to me um but it wasn't a no he just said oh, I'd like you to come in meet me and I just thought wow the national's good isn't it I didn't know much <laughs> about it but that's it yeah, that's brilliant I definitely knew the national I'd seen a mammoth play there and I just thought, oh, wonderful, you know, because at that age, it's like I don't want to disappoint my parents. I don't quite know what I'm doing with my life. So if I could just be good at this, everything would be all right, you know. This desperate state of confusion of not quite knowing what you're gonna do and hoping that you'll be good at this, and then maybe eventually be able to earn some money out of it. Anyway, the national felt like a big deal. But then I you go to that meeting and Ben was brilliant. Ben said, Look, a bit weird this. He says, When you have these meetings. Part of what we're doing is saying we just need to check that you're you and the play came from you, as ridiculous as that sounds. Uh And I thought, oh, that's a – can't quite wrap my head around it. But I suppose there are frauds out there. And there are – he always said there's a big difference between a journalist and a writer. Uh, And I sort of know what he means. Somebody's just sort of exploring something in an article fashion, which can look rather impressive, but there's a lack of something there. You should be able to see that on the page. But they also want to see: Did this play come from you? What's at the heart of it, and what more have you got? You know, (laughs) and it was lovely that he was honest. And he said, "Look, I'm going to take this play. What happens is the artistic director meets, and they've got some assistants too. Um, Other what do you call those other? My God, associate directors. So they're in the room, and there might be twelve of them, fourteen, royal court, similar thing. And so he was brilliant. He just said, "I'm going to put this on the table and say that I think it should go on." But there's almost no chance of it happening. <laughs> uh, he says, because I'm your advocate in the room. No one else knows you are. You're pretty much first time. You are a first time writer. Um, so it's unlikely. But I just want you to know the process. And I, that was l- gorgeous of him, actually. Lovely guy. Uh, unfortunately, left the National probably about a year later. Um, but that was lovely because it was really honest. And I didn't feel low status. We just had a chat. And he said, this is just a chat. I just want to get to know you. So that's one type of meeting and lovely if they're as open as that and as kind and human as Ben Yankovic, then you're lucky.
0: So you've had some really useful advocates, haven't you, in your career, you know, from um, your mate's dad who was a director at Lambda to Simon Stevens um, to, to Ben Yankovic. And all of these are people who you kind of met and they got to know you and they liked you and trusted you and, you know, they wanted to um, be your advocate. So like, for instance, if you'd gone into that room with Ben Yankovic and there'd been other people in that room who you'd had a chance to meet and get to know, then you might not just have had Ben. You might have actually had quite a few advocates in that room and it, it might have had a different outcome. And I just wonder whether there are things that we can do to be more proactive in going out, making those connections with people so that when the time comes, you know, we've got people who want to champion our work yeah good. that's a good question isn't it
2: I just um I think all of my life I'm looking for a genuine moment and a genuine connection which is tricky in theatre and that's what I live by it's what I'm writing That'll about cute, yeah. and that's I think you know that's a big part of who I am really You're absolutely right. Knowing Ben, then I got an attachment at the National where I wrote Cradle Me. Ben was an advocate, but he wasn't as large a voice as Jack Bradley at the time. who's the literary manager who didn't like Cradle Me. It works like that, right? But you do need a fan in the building. But I do really believe you've got to have work to have that. You can't just go in there and blag it. And I used to say to Mike, I said, I'm not helping myself. I don't stick around. I didn't even go to my own press nights. There's three or four of those that I've missed they unnerve me i don't enjoy it um i just find them deeply unsettling Mm. and i want an honest conversation and i feel like i can have that if you like my play or and you want to talk about it well let's talk about that but i don't want to talk about the business i i can't gossip and it was a big problem for me early on I, i remember jason hall saying to me he says i i bet you do struggle in those meetings and i did really struggle I remember pitching some ideas, saying I don't pitch, but I did pitch for the connections. Yeah. To Anthony Banks. And i, I he won't mind me naming him on this. I don't think so. So, because he was great, right? I went to meet him, but the meeting was, <laughs> I'm sure it's all my fault and not Anthony's, but I was just there going, and? And, you know, because what, what, what am I here for? And that was a bit my attitude, not in an aggressive way, but if somebody called me for a meeting, why am I here? Yeah. And it's never explicitly said. that he sort of let's just have a chat and get to know you kind of thing. I, essentially, if I was smart, I would have got okay. He wants to talk to me about putting on a connections play. Why else has he called me in for the meeting? Yeah. But I go with this attitude of I'm bored. I've had an, like I'd rather stay at home and write for a morning yeah. than come and meet you, mm. um, which is dangerous territory to getting. And then subsequently, I got to know Anthony doing connections, and he's just a really bubbly guy, and he would have loved to have a bit more of a chat.
0: So what about agents then? At what point did you get an agent? Perhaps Neil at Fimbra
2: said, you should write to the agents and get them to come and say, get yourself an agent. All right. I remember writing to them and I sort of remember Mel Kenyon going, yeah, we don't do writers like you. <laughs> it's a really snobby letter. Uh, maybe I'm being unkind, but it was felt really dismissive what she wrote. And I just chuckled to myself. I was like, OK. And then didn't hear from anyone. And then uh, Nick came and sat next to Mark Dudgeon from Methuen, who was um, he was so supportive. He used to be a teacher; it was really personal to him. I just remember him standing up in the front row, kind of crying, and just he was wonderful. Such a sort of almost like having a megaphone in this pan. Just <laughs> he was brilliant, so supportive. Methuen have been like that; all of them they've been really lovely. So he was sat next to Nick Quinn, who's a very quiet guy, and he said, "Oh, it's brilliant." Um, you would you come for a meeting and so i said okay and i met and then loads of people emailed basically every agent oh because they've seen the reviews right and they were yeah come and meet me and i didn't i did, didn't meet them i thought i like the fact that nick did what he did and i met someone else who worked at curtis brown and i walked into curtis brown and it had this big screen with all their actors on it was in the west end and i thought no <laughs> just not you know and i so i spoke i'd had the meeting and i met nick quinn it was very informal this little office in holland park and we just had a chat and he did say i've got to warn you i'm not much of a film and tv guy And i know you love film and i said yes yeah. so i was thinking oh that's also good maybe to <laughs> go with a commercial guys at case brown so i went to, talk to simon i went round to the site of the royal court and he went oh they've been on to you and they're the agents so i didn't i said who do you like? You've got to have a personal connection with them and really feel like you can talk to them. So I just rang Nick straight away and said, I want to be with you. Great. And he was, he was great. And I didn't meet any of the others because it mattered, really matters to me, that whole thing of integrity and treating people the right way. And Nick oozes that. He's uh, been wonderful. The trouble you have as a new writer is that, and Nick, I say it with absolute respect, I love him and I would not have any other agent in the world. They don't get your work. Yeah. so he's been brilliant support and he was at his best after I'd done the writers academy at the bbc and I was like fuck this I hate it you know I <laughs> so don't you
1: got under writers academy where was that that
2: after? was so that was a product of I'd had a couple of years of this theatre and getting quite fed up with how things were working about the the wait time and feeling like I'm not making money and not getting honest answers from people and so I thought well maybe I'll do that and actually it was terribly, it was well paid because you got paid being taught in the class. And I loved learning about film, uh, John York, and I just loved it. I think as you guys know, I, I love talking about stories and story structure and um, movies. So I really loved that bit. But then when it came to writing, <laughs> continuing, I'm not, I'm not above soaps or anything, I'm not above anything. Just, you know, yeah, There's no cultural snobbery here. Yeah, I just you wrote
1: Freestanders in 2010.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I hated every second of it. And I was, <laughs> and I, not because I, I am, wow, well, I'm the opposite of better than it. I, I do not feel that way at all about anything. I can't tell you some of the nonsense that I watch and read. But, um, so it's not about, oh, I'm a theatre guy. And I, I just couldn't connect with it. I watched it as a child, and I think I would have written a brilliant one when I was about 12, 13. But now I'm so separate from it. And I tried to write. Storytelling is all about a character changing, and fundamentally, soap is not. Uh, and I struggled with that tremendously. Yeah. So I was really poor at it, actually. And that whole frustration of, um you know, writing stuff and then someone going, "Maybe you should just..." I can't, you know, back off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, having a script editor try and sort of tell you how to write dialogue? No, no, no. I mean, no. I don't want to be critical of those things, but I just could not. And then. I had a lovely meeting with John York here. He was really good. He said, you've got to write Holby City next. And I just said, I don't understand what the fuck that is. I don't get it. You know, and he went, I really don't think, you all want to give up writing if you do it. And it was brilliant of him to say. Wow,
1: that, that's some advice.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and I just went, yeah. That's being
1: discerning. We were talking about it, it being is, discerning yeah. as well and choosing what you
2: yeah spend time doing. Yeah. So he was actually really good, although John could be quite clumsy and... Uh, with the greatest respect, lack humanity sometimes. He was really a bit rash sometimes, but he was he was really kind with me. I think it was very nice to me, and I took I loved his film session. So I did actually take a lot from that. But then it was two thousand and ten that paid for me to get married, <laughs> and and then I had a son. And then when he was um, six months old, he got type one diabetes. We were told he was going to die, and my life completely transformed from then and um it became really i just couldn't do the things that i used to do Mm. so while you said i've been prolific looking at my cv it killed me because george's condition meant that in the beginning i was having to treat him medically 45 50 60 70 times a day and we've got me and my wife he was in hospital for a long time It's a very tricky condition and money was just disappearing because neither of us were working. We're just desperately trying to keep this boy alive. And you are essentially his doctor's, nurse's, everything when he leaves. And then as we were desperate, we got to go back to work. Tracy's work was immovable. She was this, she's got clients. She goes to the massage therapist. She had a very successful business, still does. But she had to go back to work, whereas my work was constantly immovable because I'm a writer. I could do it anywhere. And... Just finding the time. It, it was impossible. I was waking up every half an hour or an hour, possibly less. Sleeping less than three hours a night for two and a half years.
1: So creativity wasn't <laughs> creativity wasn't the foremost in
2: your It was still there. It was just a deep frustration and all those things I've talked about about wanting to be a man and just feeling like you're none of those, because you've you've turned into this care essentially. And all, all yeah. you know, although I'm doing all of the right things by my family, it was very complex coping with all that emotionally. But you know, I've got this incredible son and he's still there and uh very th- much thriving and an amazing wife. And mm. so uh, my, I definitely don't want to complain about any aspect of my life. And
1: so are you so obviously we know you because you taught us. Yeah. It was a brilliant course and obviously I, I know that you had other you will have other courses on and venues in London are you finding time to write as well as teach now
2: well so yes is the answer i have written a new play for the first time in two and a half wow. years so uh which we have an actor for i top secret but he's a the dream of who i could want oh, to do it so okay. i definitely can't Congratulations. maybe i could say if we, when we get further down the line and i can tell you but um it's everything that's happened over the last eight years it's this play it's deeply personal and, um, uh, and so it's all about issues. that thing of trying to be a man it's a tough watch <laughs> yeah um, but I'm oh, that's great really though. proud of it and what stage um, are you up with that finished is done. So it's done so he's and now you've got you've got the act yeah we're going to do it as one night thing first of all it's going to be a we're going to do it to give all the money to the charity that we raise we're going to put it in a probably quite a large theatre um, we're sort of the venues now it all looks great uh, and then then i'll put it on as a play because well the act has been wonderful about it actually and yes so the crucial bit is george has got a new piece of technology very oh, recently right. so yes so i have been waking up so after that first couple of years probably seven times a night so i did still manage i did the connections i did city love i'd play on at Hampstead. i managed uh for the last however many years being up seven times a night this piece of technology has steadied his blood sugars overnight. Oh. And uh, for the first time since January, there wasn't a single time that an alarm went. I'm still waking up, but twice a night, maximum for the last three weeks. The first wow. night it happened, I slept nearly six hours. I haven't slept six hours in eight years. So, uh and the next day, I wrote half a screenplay. Oh. And my wife just so. sort of giggled. We both That's crying amazing. on each other. But um, yeah, it's the happiest I've been in eight years because oh, I, I know that's that he's safer. It's uh, brilliant. And I feel, you know, really hopeful that I'll be able to write a lot more. And But, you know, everybody's, uh, everybody has stuff going on in life. And But it's difficult with theatres. I remember going for the meeting with Hampstead and they said, where have you been? <laughs> yeah. And it is tricky because you just feel like you're disappearing. And that thing of you said of making a presence being felt, and it just felt like it was completely going away from me. And theatre changes, there's such a, quick turnover of staff. Perhaps not always with the artistic director. Some people stay for a while because that's probably the better paid job. But some of the others, you know, the literary teams that you will build relationships with turns over quick. So suddenly you no know, it feels like no one knows who you are and they don't know why you've left. And then maybe they just think, oh well he just, you know, he wanted to be a dad and he's not bothered about it anymore. And you're like, oh I do, I wanna yeah, you know, right. But everybody has stuff, you know, birth, deaths, marriages, divorces, bigger stuff, illnesses. Yeah
0: so Simon thank you so much for coming on the podcast it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you and uh, very inspiring thank you you. so one of the things about Simon is like you can sort of look at it like he oh he just got this amazing start like he wrote a play and like then he got on the royal court young writers that you know yeah um and, and it kind of be a bit like, oh, right, oh, it's that easy. Fair enough, yeah. You know, <laughs> what, what can I learn from that, actually? Yeah. Nothing. <laughs> um, on the one hand, Simon always sort of says, oh, I, I hate networking. Um, I think you just have to write a good play. Networking isn't for me. I, air kisses and champagne, oh, not for me. But actually, if you look at all the things that he's had, these amazing bits of good fortune, all of it has actually come from meeting people and getting on with them in a, just an authentic, casual way, but it's all networking, isn't it? Yeah. Like
1: he's because he's. I think he doesn't even realise how how approachable he is, especially in this industry. I think that people will find yeah. him. So, but the other thing is as well is that yes, his his career started um, with a play being handed in um he passed over to someone at the royal court and then he got his opportunities to take part in their playwright program but that must have been good writing
0: yeah he's I know.
1: obviously he's extremely well he's extremely he's naturally talented and i think he's also naturally self-deprecating and doesn't even
0: yeah perhaps yeah.
1: give himself enough credit for that
0: it's interesting actually Yeah. so what makes him a good writer is his heart and his kindness And his authenticity, his realness, they make him a good writer. It's also actually what makes him easy to get on with. And it's probably why people want to do things like send his play to the Royal Court or direct his play or act for him for nothing, you know? So I think the two things do go together. But I think it's interesting, like just that idea of networking, that it's all about some sort of superficial sucking up to people. Uh, but it, I don't think it is that. I think it's just being yourself and getting on with people. And he oh, yeah. does that really well, actually.
1: I think so, but and I think it's just um remembering that you've got you've, you've always got someone in common with these people, which mm. is that you love writing and you love theatre, and um that's a good a good place to start. You know, even if you're quite introverted and shy, or just introverted and choose not to talk too much, then you've still got a common base and generally in my experience people will talk <laughs> even if you don't want to yeah people will talk and you can just listen <laughs>
0: yeah you can just create silences for them to fill i've noticed <laughs> people do that for me
1: <laughs> yeah um, but uh, you know the overriding thing about simon is is like i said his incredible generosity he's in a really great writer and a really great teacher as well
0: yeah he is he is So that's all for this episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell your friends, share it on social media. And if you've got an iPhone, please find us on the Apple podcast app and give us five stars. It makes search engines like us and it helps new listeners to find us.
1: We'll be back with a new episode very soon. Until then, keep safe and well. Bye for now.